0: hey everybody quick quick question who turns down free money well if you shop online without the best coupons you're already paying too much I mean way too much Fortunately, I have got a fix. Check out the free browser extension, Honey, Honey, automatically finds the best coupons on the web so you can always get the best prices on everything online. Just two clicks and you can add Honey to any browser for free. That's right, it is free. I have it downloaded on my laptop. Honey scans and test millions of coupons in the background while you shop. You can do that right now while you're listening to my podcast. More than 7 million people use Honey every single day and together they are saving millions millions. Come on now. There is no reason not to add Honey to your browser right now. It's free. It takes just seconds to install and it will save you a ton of money. Join the millions of people who have already discovered Honey. Do as I've done. Add Honey to your browser for free right now at joinhoney.com/rome. Once again, join honey Dot com slash Rome.
2: Why wouldn't you change that? Like, ain't you got to penalize right arm and hand. You almost lost your life, man. We're 10 games away from making probably millions of dollars. And the reason I wouldn't change it is because of what happened to the people that were connected to me. It changed a lot of people's lives. I got the real contract. I got the life contract. And it's long and it's rich. And so I wouldn't change nothing that ever happened to me.
0: Welcome to the Jim Roam Podcast. This is episode 39, and my guest is Inky Johnson. Inky Johnson is an absolutely amazing individual. He fought his way out of a two-bedroom house that packed in 14 in the Kirkwood neighborhood of Atlanta. He was an undersized two-star football recruit who committed to legendary Tennessee coach Phil Fulmer on the spot. And after he arrived in Knoxville, he made his presence felt immediately. He earned three letters for the Vols. He was on his way to an NFL career— And then his life changed forever on September 9th, 2006. He made a tackle late in a win against Air Force. The violent collision ended his football career on the spot. And while emergency surgery saved his life, it could not save his right arm. That could have been the end of Inky's story right there, but I'll let him tell you the rest. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Episode 39 gets popping right after this word from... Lumber Liquidators. I cannot believe we're at F39, so what that means is 2018 is flying right on by, and we all want to continue to make sure that we elevate our game to the next level and make this the best year we've ever had. Listen, if you're a contractor or a builder or a remodeler, elevating your game the rest of this year just got a whole lot easier thanks to my pals at Lumber Liquidators and their LL Pro Plus program. Let me tell you about that program. LL Pro Plus is Lumber Liquidators' new pro. Services team that you can call on for all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you absolutely dominate it this year with professional pricing and dedicated support to get you what you need when you need it. So this way, your projects all get finished on time. And LL Pro Plus gives you the ultimate value and quality. And with LL Pro Plus, no job is too large, no job is too small. In fact, they can help you with pretty much anything at all. So put the flooring experts on your team today. Visit your local Lumber liquidator store, or if you want, go to LumberLiquidators.com. That's LumberLiquidators.com. Let's continue to make 2018 the best year ever with Lumber Liquidators. I've got a quick question for y'all. How is it episode 39 and this voicemail machine is still around? No, don't answer that, because I know the answer and it makes me violently ill. This tape box and that little red blinking light are still around because some of you are subscribed to this podcast solely for the stupidity and absurdity that lies right on the other side of this play button. But here's the rub I do want you here. I want you here because there's a chance you'll keep the episode rolling through the voicemails and then catch an amazing conversation. So if you're only here for this, just keep the pod playing. Keep it playing and listen to Inky Johnson. Because even though you don't believe me, I am telling the truth when I say the episodes actually get better the longer they run. Trust me. In fact, try it. I give you these messages. You give me the time on the back end. Deal? Deal.
1: First new message.
0: Hey, Jim. This is Harrison Ford. Are you planning on going to see that movie solo? Don't. It's shit. Don't do it, or I will fly
2: by your house. Who has a movie solo without me in it? And that little glorified Yorkie bitch Chewbacca. He and I had a pact. One for all and all for one. Don't see solo. I'd rather see Hope Solo pooping behind a counter and flinging poo at people.
1: Message deleted. Next message.
2: Rome, Shauna, South Carolina. No quicker did I end that podcast with Metal World Peace thinking, man, Rome is always right. You don't know these guys. And, man, you're right. You don't know them. What a great interview. Very enlightening. The podcast is getting better and better each week. Keep it up, Rome.
1: Message saved. Next message.
2: You know, Tony Stewart, (laughs) murder one, (laughs) driver of the car number 187. (laughs) Smoke, you're a piece of crap. How the hell are you out of jail after running over a man? Outro.
1: Message deleted. Next message.
2: This is Robert. Yo, Romy. I've been a big fan for a long time. I show up every day to work, not only to earn a living, but to listen to your show, which is the best show of all time. But I wish I would have called in sick today because that take on that nasty kate worm, wherever the hell you were talking about got to me and the graphic way that you described that was horrific and i haven't been the same since and to be honest with you i've been afraid to drop anchor
1: message deleted next message
2: Jimmy, me gimme yo it's walk kind out of thought like man i was just talking to this guy you know and I, I told him i said yo man you gotta vote for this dude you gotta vote for jim jim rome man Because he's gonna be in the radio hall of fame. So the guy says to me, he says, he says, well, what if, what if I don't vote for Jim Rowan? I said, I've killed you, man.
1: Message saved. Next message.
2: Jim, you've given us Toby. Now give us the rapper. We need to know the rapper who hit on Janet and will get you in the hall of fame. Thanks.
1: Message saved. Next message.
2: What's up, Air Smack? I'm curious as to how to vote for you to get into the Radio Hall of Fame. I don't need no demands and none of that stuff. I've been watching you since I was about 12 years old or so on TV. I remember you on ESPN. Now I listen to you on the radio. I just need to know how to vote for you. Screw these other fools that have a list of demands. Please tell me how to vote for you. You're a fucking idol, bro.
1: Message saved. Next message.
2: Rome, this is Craig, man, from Indy. Long-time listener. So proud of you and the show, man, and been bumping the jungle ever since 1998. Man, I just wanted to just give you the love, man, and you know, you got my
0: vote for the Hall of Fame. Don't even worry about it, man. I don't even need anything from you.
1: Message saved. You have no more messages.
0: Listen, I appreciate everybody who has taken the time to call in and ask about the Hall of Fame. Voting does start June 4th and believe me, you will hear from us on how to vote when it's time. And as much as I appreciate you making your demands for the box of chaos, I really appreciate people who call in and say that they're going to give me their vote with no strings attached. But I do know how this works and I know the deal that I've made. So I've already given you Toby from Houston. If the Box of Chaos pulls the wrapper, I will give you that as well. So I'll do that for you. Now please do this for me. Get your reps in on the voicemail. Dial me up here. Leave me a take. Leave me a rant. Hell, leave me a drunk dial or a cron call. Leave me some fresh material. Not Harry Ford. Not Hope Solo. And certainly not Tim Horton smack. 949-385-0447. Do better going forward. You have that number. Hell, I might even pick up and we could even wrap. Maybe you can put that into your list of demands. Let me ask you a quick question, how many of you have your own business? The U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business, right? It reaches every household every single day. Now, Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. You see, Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. The exact amount of postage every time. I'm talking the exact amount of postage every single time. Never underpay or overpay ever again. And it's so easy. Create your stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Click, print, mail, bam, you're done. I use stamps.com because it is so easy and it saves me so much time and money. I wish I had started sooner. And right now, you too can enjoy stamps.com service with a special offer which includes a 4-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Rome. Once again, stamps.com enter Rome. This is an amazing service. stamps.com enter Rome. This is Ep 39 of the Jim Rohn Podcast, and as I look back on this thing, I've got to be straight. We have booked some tremendous guests. Bob Costas and Aaron Rodgers right from the jump. Keegan-Michael Key, Molly Bloom, The Mamba, Big Money Mike Smith, my man Kevin Frazier, Brian Koppelman. I mean, pull an ep from the deck, and trust me, it's coming up aces. 38 straight, all the way up to last week's outstanding conversation with Meta World Peace. I've got to be honest, I'm not sure I've been giving myself anywhere near enough credit for some of the absolutely outstanding podcasts that we've thrown down. Truly premium content just waiting for you to push play on. And of all the people I've run down, I know I've never spoken to anybody quite like Inky Johnson. Inky's attitude is amazing, it's infectious. His ability to see life the way he sees it is so powerful. And to hear him tell his story and see how he uses it to help people is the kind of message I can never get enough of, and I know you'll feel the same way. Inky Johnson is an absolute baller, a warrior, and you will see why after you listen to this conversation. Enjoy. Oh, man, I'm doing great. It's
2: an honor to be on. You know, things are going great. You know, just serving every day and enjoying life as it comes.
0: All right, then. I think a lot of people know your story. There are some who do not. So why don't we just go back? You grew up in East Atlanta in a neighborhood called Kirkwood. There were 14 people in a two-bedroom home. What was it like to grow up in that house?
2: You know, it was it was interesting, to say the least. You know, you had two bedrooms, you had 14 people, and, um... You know, I learned a lot, but most importantly, the things I would say I learned was to be grateful for what I had. You know, growing up in the Kirkwood community, we had everything under the sun, you know, from drugs to violence to games. You know, I saw it every single day I stepped out of my household. And so me, my whole quest was to give my family a better way of life. And it didn't have to do with, you know, superficial, materialistic things as much as it was. I just wanted my own bed. You know, I slept on the floor. I got an opportunity to sleep in a the bed. There'll be six of us in the bed, three at the foot at the head. And so I just wanted to have my own bed, you know, most of my childhood.
0: You know, Anki, I would imagine also, I mean, it had to be so challenging. Were there days, for instance, when there wasn't even enough food to eat?
2: Oh, absolutely. It It was many days that we didn't have enough to eat. And, you know, most of the nights when we didn't eat, the next morning when we would go to school, me and my three younger cousins, you know, they were younger than me. And so they didn't know how to process it. You know, I could handle it a little bit better. And so, they would always rush to the front of the breakfast line, you know, in the cafeteria. And there was a cafeteria administrator, and he would always put us on the wall. He would say, Johnson boys, get on the wall. And he would say, Inky, you're the oldest. Why do you let them do this? And I would always be too embarrassed to tell him that we didn't eat the night before. And so one morning when he did it, he put us on the wall, and he said, Johnson boys, the same routine. Inky, you're the oldest. Why do you let them do this? And this morning, man, I was just frustrated. And I said to him, man, we didn't eat last night. And he said, uh, I didn't know. I said, you didn't ask. You know, and so it was many of those nights to where we would hit the school the next morning. My cousins, they would rush to the front of that line and we'd get put on the wall, you know, for breaking the line, And we had to learn how to process that.
1: Hmm.
0: So, Inky, who were the types of people who invested in you growing up? And then what kind of an impact did they have on you or did that have on you as you were going forward?
2: It it changed my life. You know, when I say it changed my life, people. You know, seeing things in me when I couldn't see it in myself. I had a coach, you know, first white guy I ever met in our neighborhood. You know, came up, drove in Kirkwood, you know, in a blue pickup truck. Me and my cousins playing tackle football in the street. You know, he got out of his truck, talked to us, You know, asked us if he wanted to play organized sports, if he wanted to play football on the grass. We were playing in the street. We were cut up. We were bloody. And um, I told him, yeah, he said, go in the house, get your parents, get your guardians and I had an uncle in the house at the time, and I went and talked to my uncle, and he came out, and my coach ended up paying for me and my three younger cousins to play ball. And in my family, the only people that ended up going to college was me and my three younger cousins that he paid for on that street that day, and I still talk to him every week, you know, until this day. And uh, when he did that, it made me look at people different. You know, this was a guy that I didn't know from a can of paint. He came into our neighborhood, he stopped, and he cared about people that he didn't know. And so it affected the way that I lived my life, even until this day.
0: So, Inky, you mentioned college. I mean, given what you went through growing up, given the dropout rates in the public school system at that time, what did it mean to you to get a full ride to the University of Tennessee?
2: It meant everything. You know, I, I went to Crim High School. Crim High School was an Atlanta public school. It was maybe five minutes away from Turner Field where the Braves played the dropout rate was higher than the graduation rate. In Atlanta, the people knew Crim High School as crime high, you know. And so when I made it to the University of Tennessee from Crim, it was a big deal because a lot of people didn't think I would make it, including my own mother at one point. And I love my mother. But she said to me at one point, she said, Inky, I can't play with your future. People don't go to college from Crim High School. And I begged my mother. I said, yeah, but give me a shot. And they even transferred me my sophomore year from that school to tucker high school and i begged and pleaded for them to transfer me back to crim high school and so when i went to college from crim high school my three younger cousins they ended up going to college from that place i had best friends that ended up going to college play ball at mississippi state tuskegee and a couple of years after people started going to college they shut the school down and so when i went to tennessee it was a big deal because it opened the kids in my community's eyes and just showed people that it's a different way you don't have to sell drugs you don't have to join a game. You can go to college and get you a real shot. And me speaking of real shot, it's not so much an NFL shot. It's about education. It's about the great equalizer in life. And so it's a big deal to me.
0: Inky Johnson joining us. So, Inky, at that point in time, how many people in your family had gone to college when you enrolled at Tennessee?
2: No one. I was the first in my family to go to college and, and break that generational curse.
0: You know, when we talk about education being the great equalizer, we'll get to that, and I want to keep that thought for a minute. So you're there, and you come in, and then just before the season opener, you're breaking down tape a Cal. When your DB coach comes to you and says, Inc., I've got some good news, what did he tell you?
2: Yeah, so um, Larry Slade, great coach, great man, he told me um, going into my third year, said, Inc., i got some great news. You're on track to graduate in three years. And uh, you can declare for the NFL, man, your draft take, right? And I went out of the room and I called my mother and my grandmother, you know, and I told them after this season, our lives would never be the same. We'll never have to struggle again. And it's a great chance that I'm going to be in the NFL and going to be doing well for myself.
0: So how did it feel to know that you were that close to realizing the dream? I mean, the dream that you had been working for since you were seven, your mission and the ability to take care of your entire family, and you were that close. How did that feel? I mean, you were literally 10 games away.
2: And it felt, it felt great. But for the first time in my life, Jim, I had been struggling, fighting, clawing for so long. It felt as if the puzzle was finally starting to come together. It felt as if things were starting to make sense. You know, things are starting to happen for me. And so, you know, when that moment happened with my coach, it was almost like a sigh of relief. Like, man, I've been working to get to this point, and now all I have left is 10 games, and I'll accomplish my dream.
0: You know, Anka, you told the story about how your mom said initially that, I don't know if you should go to Tennessee, I don't know, or you should go to this high school because it just might not be realistic for you to get to college. You also tell a great story that when she would get off work, you'd already be working out, even as a youngster, and she would come to pick you up in the park, and then you'd make her stay a little bit longer. Why was that? What was going on then?
2: Absolutely. So my mother worked uh, about two blocks away from the park that I played football at, Youth League. And so she worked at a Wendy's and my mother used to pull a double shift at Wendy's. And so when she would get off work, I would still be in a park after practice, you know, with my coaches and working out and she would pull up and I would go over and I would hug her and I would give her a kiss on the jaw. And I would say, mom, if you don't mind, can you please sit in your car and turn on your car lights? I have to do some extra drills. I have to make it to the NFL. I have to work. And I knew my mother was tired and she would always sit in that car. It was an old Beard Regal hubcaps off the car, seats torn up, cars all beat up. She was sitting in that park because we were there so late. They had already cut the lights off in the park. And she would turn on that car lights and the lights would hit the field. And I'll be out there doing my W drill. I'll be running sprints, doing different agility drills, you know, because I believe the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. And I believe if I wanted to make it to the NFL, I truly had to work for it. And by my mother making that sacrifice, it meant something to me. You know, every time I stepped in between the lines, the things that I saw was my mother sitting in that car after she got off the double shift at Wendy's, letting her kid chase this dream. And so for me, I was playing for something totally different.
0: So you took that on the field with you every single time. And then you get into your third year at Tennessee and then inky on September 9th, 2006, late in the fourth quarter against Air Force. You come up to make a play on an Air Force player, a running back who had caught a pass and he's near the sideline. What happened next? And so
2: this guy catches this pass from Air Force's quarterback, and I'm going to make the tackle. It's a little bit under two minutes left in the game. And as soon as I hit him and made contact on him, it seemed as if I just lost control of my body. You no, know, every breath of my body left. My body was completely limp. I fell to the ground. And I blacked out. It had never happened to me before. Been in a lot harder collisions. And when I came to, my teammates were over me, and they was like, hey, get up. Let's go, man. Let's close these guys out. And I was like, I couldn't. And they said, what do you mean you can't? You always get up. Like, you're our guy. You're starting corner. And I said, I can't. They said, what do you mean you can't? I said, I can't feel anything. There's a shot going from the turn of my head to the bottom of my feet. And so they put me on the spine board. They rolled me in the ambulance. And they get me to the hospital. And they say, we're just going to run a couple tests and bring you back into the room. And when they brought me back into the room, shortly thereafter, the head doctor rushed into the room. And he was screaming. And he said, guys, we got to get in here. we got to rush this kid back to emergency surgery. He's about to die. And I looked at him, and I'm like, die? He said, yeah, you're about to die. you ruptured, just a craving artery in your chest. You're bleeding internally. We have to rush you back, take the main vein out of your left leg and plug it into your chest, or you won't be here in the morning.
0: Inky, I mean, there's so much to unpack from that. When you were on the field, and I want to come back to what you just said about that doctor telling you that, but when you were on the field and your teammates, I mean, to a lot of these guys, y- you were larger than life. I mean, you were the guy, and they're saying, come on, Ink, come on, Inky, get up and you're saying, I can't, what in the world was going through your mind as you lay there and you couldn't feel anything?
2: Now, that was one of the scariest moments of my life, you know, because paralysis goes through your mind, you know, and then I'm just hoping that it's a stinger. You know, I'm hoping that soon it's going to go away and I'll be able to play and help my teammates because football was something, you know, it was a family for me. It was a brotherhood to me, and so... When I told guys I was going to give them everything that I had, I meant it with every fiber of my being. So me lying on that field, not being able to help my teammates, you know, that hurt me to the core. You know, and so as I was laying there, that was one of the scariest moments of my
0: life. So then, Niki, they cart you off. They cart you off. What did you tell the medic who was with you on that cart as you were taken off the field?
2: You know, I, I, uh, I asked the guy. He was rolling me off, and I asked him, uh, could he raise my, uh, my right hand, you know, and he raised my right hand, and I've, I've raised my left, and I pumped it to the fans, and I told them I'll be back. And I told them i will be all right, and I'll be back.
0: And how did the fans respond? Were they quiet, or maybe were they trying to reach back to you?
2: <laughs> they were quiet, and then when I pumped my fist, it just it was an uproar, you know. It was like it was quiet. You could hear a pin drop, and when I pumped my fist, the fans exploded, the stadium exploded.
0: They were chanting your name, weren't they?
2: They were chanting my name, Inky Johnson, Inky Johnson. And I thought for sure, man, I, I'll be back. You know, I thought it was just one of these things that happened. And I think everybody thought that I would be back after I pumped my fist and they started chanting my name.
0: You bet. So they rushed you to the hospital. And before that doctor came in, you actually saw your parents. They were in the room with you. What did your parents Absolutely. tell you? What did they say?
2: They were saying to me, Inky, it'll be all right. It's football. You know, things happen. You know, sure you'll be okay. You know, I cracked a couple of jokes, laughed. You know, nobody was taking it too serious.
0: And then that doctor rushes in and says, listen, this guy's about to die. We got to get him out of here right now for surgery. When you heard that, what went through your mind?
2: What happened? That was a quick shift, you know, and and me just thinking, like, man, everything was just okay. And to him rushing into the room, to me fighting for my life. And I'm like, man, let's let's do it. You know, save my life. Do whatever you got to do. But when I woke up, my perspective was totally different.
0: Alright, so before we talk about what it was like when you woke up, did they, did they tell you what they were going to do or did they present you with some options? Exactly what happened before you went into surgery?
2: The only thing he told me was I had ruptured my subclavian artery in my chest, the main artery, and that I was bleeding internally. And that they had to take the main vein out of my left leg and plug it into my chest in order to save my life. Or if that didn't happen pretty quickly, I would bleed out and I would I would pass away. Hmm.
0: All right, so you said your perspective immediately changed after you woke up. The same doctor was there when you awoke after surgery, and he said, Inky, there's good news and there's bad news. What did he lay out for you?
2: Yeah, the good news is um, we saved your life, you know, and I'm like, man, thank you. And he said the bad news is um, you probably can never play football another day in your life. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, like, no way. I'm like, no way, man, I'm, I'm 10 games away. And I'm, I'm telling the doctor, it's like, no disrespect to you, doc. Like, I know you're doing the job. I know it's protocol. You're saying what you got to say. I'm like, but no disrespect to you. You wasn't in the park with me and my mother when I was a kid. I, she got off work at Wendy's and sat in the car with her car lights on. I was like, man, no disrespect to you. You wasn't up on Saturday mornings running two miles to a fire station two miles back home. Like, no disrespect to you. You didn't grow up in that two-bedroom home with 14 people. Like, I'm 10 games away. And so, for me, it was surreal. I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to receive it.
0: Yeah, right. And then, was there any part of you, Inky, that thought, look, I, I've done all the right things. I have never cheated anybody of anything. Did you find yourself asking, why me? Why me?
2: Absolutely. The challenging part was just what you said, Jim. I had never cheated. You know, I prided myself on doing things the right way. You know, I was never the biggest, the fastest, the strongest, but I prided myself on hard work. You know, I I was that guy. I wouldn't come up short of a line. You know, I was that guy. If my teammates left and I couldn't get them to stay and do a workout, I would do my workout and do their workout. You know, I was that type of guy, so I had never cheated myself. And so it was a part of me that felt like, man, how could the game, you know, betray me? My father was standing there. How could this happen? You know, you never cheated. You did things the right way. And so trying to understand and process that, It got a bit difficult and challenging, you know, and so the feeling of, you know, why did this have to happen at this moment, right? If it was going to happen, it should have happened a long time ago, not when I got 10 games away from making it to the NFL.
0: So you're in the hospital, Anki. How long were you supposed to be in the hospital?
2: I was supposed to be in the hospital somewhere from um, 40 to 60 days.
0: And then how long were you in the hospital?
2: I walked out of the hospital on the third day.
0: How did you do that?
2: <laughs> I, um, I felt the sense of responsibility and accountability to the people that helped me get to that point. Just by the way that I lived my life. I felt as if it would have been disrespectful not only to my mother, my father, uh, my coaches, my teammates, uh, the educators, the people in the community that helped me get to that point if I just would have laid there and said, you know what, my career is over, now my life is over, right? I felt as if it was disrespectful, and I knew for me and my healing and the way I wanted to live my life, I had to get back around my teammates and get back in the routine as quickly as possible.
0: Inky, I mean, that's amazing. I'm, I'm sorry, help me understand this. I mean, you nearly died. You could have lost your life. You're dealing with the loss of feeling in a limb. I mean, that was a horrific, traumatic thing. I think anybody would have understood if you stayed there a little bit longer or even much longer. How in the world did you have that perspective? How did you think? How could you pivot that quickly mentally after what happened to you?
2: <laughs> Man, I, I've never been the person to um, complain about things that I'm not willing to change. And so when it happened, my mindset went to a space of it happened, so what, now what? You know, what are you going to do about it? Inc? Your career could be over, right? you got to paralyze right arm in hand, possibly. And so you made a vow to your teammates. You told them that you would give them everything you had. And so now that you can no longer play the game, does that stop? Like, is, is the commitment and the vows that I make, is it conditionalized, right? To if a situation or circumstance happens that I can't control, does the things that I once said now not get fulfilled because something happened to me? And so I wanted to be, be committed beyond circumstance.
0: I don't know, Inc. I'm getting chills hearing this. Listen, in your last doctor's visit, that doctor told you, and I quote, I'm sorry, Inky, you will never be able to use that arm again. End of quote. What did you tell that doctor?
2: You know, I just shared with him, I said, Physically. You know, and he was looking at me like, physically? I said, yeah, physically I'm not a commission. You know, I can't, I can't throw my right hook. You know, my arm is paralyzed. You know, physically I can't use it and do some of the things that I used to do. But I told him I would use this arm and this hand every day for the rest of my life by the way that I live my life because I would never let a situation or a circumstance define my life.
0: Yeah, I am mean, getting out of that hospital is one thing, but having to pivot— and learn, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, did you not have to learn how to live your life all over again? That's something totally different than just walking out of that hospital. How were you able to do that?
2: I had a lot of great people around me, you know, from from the doctors to the training staff at UT to my parents. And, you know, I really believe, you know, that was vital, you know, in me getting out of the hospital in three days. That was vital in me getting back into my routine. You know, a lot of times we go through things and, then we look at it, and when a person overcomes something, like, man, that person, he did it. You know, he got, he got fortitude. You know, he's resilient. But the people around me drove me. You know, I'm a very loyal person. And so when I looked up and I was in the hospital, I saw all of the people that had helped me get to that point. And so it was almost like I had a different driving force for why I was doing what I was doing and what I was working for.
0: Thank you. you've said this a couple of times during this conversation, but one of your bottom lines is, I would never let a circumstance or a situation define my life. It seems kind of self-evident, but can you explain exactly what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, for me, it boils down to commitment. You know, how committed are we to our dreams, to our goals, to our aspirations, and the things that we say we want? And so my my definition of commitment is, I am going to stay true to what I said I would do long after the mood that I've set it in has left. And so when I say never let a situation or circumstance to find my life, I told my mother and my grandmother I was going to graduate college. When I left Atlanta, I sat on my grandmother's porch, I looked her in her eyes, I kissed her in her forehead, and I told her I'll be the first one in this family to graduate college. And my arm and my hand got paralyzed in the process, almost lost my life in the process. But a little bit over three years, I still walked across that stage with my undergraduate degree, and in four and a half years, I got my master's degree. I was committed to what I was working for beyond circumstance. Now, the circumstance changed. Right, Football was my dream. I wanted to make it to the NFL. But I also understood I was working for something totally different, an education. I told my mother I would finish what I started. And so for me, never let the situation or circumstance define my life, it boils down to my level of commitment.
0: And then going back to what you and I talked about at the top, where education is the great equalizer, knowing all of that, knowing even what your mother said about you going to college, knowing about the high school that you came from, knowing that you were the first in your family to do it, what was it like to walk across that stage and get that diploma?
2: Man, it was special. You know, it, um, I can honestly say I played in Nealon, and there used to be 100, over 100,000 fans. It was one of the most amazing feelings in the world. But when I walked across that stage and I got my degree and my arm at the time, it was in a brace. It was in a metal brace because they were still trying different things on my arm and my hand and the paralysis. And when I walked across that stage, that was the best feeling in the world outside of marrying my wife and having my two children. It was pretty special because the same people were there, Jim. My coach that started me out when I was a kid, my mother, you know, my father, my teammates. And everybody saw the process of what I had to go through in order to get to that moment. I had to learn how to write all over again. I was right-hand dominant. My right hand got paralyzed in the process. And so within that process, I had to go to disability services every day, and I had to learn how to write all over again with my left hand. And so when I got across that stage, there's a quote by Maya Angelou that says, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. When I walked across that stage, I walked across as one, but I was also walking across as 10,000, meaning the people that helped me get to that point and help me get that degree and get across that stage. It was special. You
0: bet. I'm glad you mentioned the word process, Inky. I've been meaning to ask you this. Because virtually every coach and every sport that I talk to, that anybody talks to, talks about the process. You do as well. But I would love for you to break down your process and why it's so important. As an example, I've heard you say, I was going to fall in love with that process because that process was going to turn me into a machine, end quote. Absolutely. I really like that. What do you mean by that? Absolutely.
2: And so I I preach process because I think it's, it's extremely important. And so a question that I always pose to people is, can you be committed to the process of what you do without being emotionally attached to the results of what you do? Meaning if you don't get what you want or the results change, will you still be the same individual that you once was? And can you still show up and can you still trust the process of what you once wanted? And so me in particular, my process over product message that I preach, a lot of people think when I say, oh, man, the process is more important than the product, they think I'm speaking about a particular product or specific product. I'm speaking about outcome of a situation. And the reason I speak about it is because my outcome changed, right? I was on this quest to make it to the NFL, and I got extremely close. And the outcome changed in a blink of an eye, and I woke up the next day, and my life was totally different. But the process, who I was working to become, right, the individual that I was on this quest every single day working so when I could no longer play the game of football that was something that I can extract from the game of football and I can apply to everyday life to make me successful no matter what I was striving to become or no matter what I wanted to aspire to do. And so when I say process is important and I was going to fall in love with it, what I was explaining was could I be committed to the process of what I wanted without being emotionally attached to the results of what I wanted.
0: Process over product. Let me ask you something. Are we all the way we are, Inky, in your opinion, because it's the way we're hardwired or is it because we're products of our environment or is it because of the decisions and choices that we make every day?
2: I think think we're a culmination for sure of the decisions and the choices that we make. But I also believe that to a certain extent we're products of our environment, you know, depending upon where we grow up at and the influences that we have. And so if I had to choose, I would say a little bit of all three. But most importantly, I think the most important is the decisions and the choices that we make every single day. Like I told a guy earlier, I said, man, you know, character is something that's vitally important. I said, but the thing about character is I don't believe anybody is born with it. Like no matter if I'm born in Atlanta, you're in California, somebody else is in New York, I don't think anybody is born with character. Character is something we got to wake up every single day. we got to fight. we got to build it we got to develop it through opposition, through adversity, through change, through challenge. And so I think it's a little bit of both. Experience, I think it's a little bit of environment. I think it's a little bit of decisions and choices. And I think to a certain extent, a person is heartwired a certain
0: way. You know, Inky, a few things before you go. You mentioned that you gotta wake up and fight for character every single day. You also said something else that you gotta get up and fight for. I've heard you say you gotta get up and fight for happiness. I think a lot of people Absolutely. just look at somebody, right? Inky, like, that person's happy. Boy, I wish I had I wish I had what they had because that person's just always naturally happy. Is it natural mm-hmm. or is it something you do have to get up and fight for every single day?
2: Absolutely. You gotta get up and you gotta fight for. It. You know, I was I was talking to Alien Forester you know, when I said that, and we were talking about football, we were talking about life, and uh, we were talking about opposition, and I was sharing with him, like, what I went through, you know, with my injury, happiness and joy and peace, was we was just going to find me? The first thing that would have found me was, why did this have to happen to me? Why are you in sorrow? You know, things should have happened to you. And so I had to wake up, and I had to fight for it, because I had a brachial plexus avulsion. After they discovered the subclavian artery that ruptured, they discovered The brachial plexus avulsion, which was the nerve roots that went from my spine to my shoulder, and it paralyzed my shoulder, my arm, and my hand. And so the thing about a brachial plexus avulsion, nobody could give you specific answers, right? Nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. They're going to do certain surgeries. They sent me back and forth to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, but they place you in a beautiful process, and they tell you you're going to make up the process. And so however your attitude and your approach is, that's going to be the process. And what it did for me was it made me learn to own the moment. It made me control my emotions and not ride the emotional roller coaster. But most importantly, it made me wake up every single day and fight for what I wanted in my life. If I want peace, fight for it. If I want joy, fight for it. If you want happiness, fight for it. And once you get it, protect it.
0: Inky, that was such a great conversation you had with Arian. I love him. He's one of my favorite guys. But I, I listened to it. Dude, it was, uh, you got to tell me what that was like. I mean, you guys both played oh. at Tennessee together. And Arian's whole oh, absolutely. point... He was like, Ink, Ink, I don't get it. He's like, you, you are naturally optimistic, and I am quite the opposite, and yet we kind of ended up in a similar place. It was really a fascinating conversation. What did you make of that? What was your takeaway from that part of the conversation?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, like you said, me and Arian, we met at Tennessee. We we're, were teammates, you know, big buddies. We were still talking to his day. And Arian has always been Arian, you know, and I've always been Ink. But I think we've, we've always gravitated toward each other, because of our perspectives, but also the level of respect and admiration that we have for each other. I think Arian told me once, he said, I admire you because you don't let other people's actions, decisions, opinions affect how you do things. And I told him during that interview, I said, people are not that powerful. I said, my wife, she's that powerful. My children, they're that powerful. And what I mean by being that powerful, my wife could say something to me, and it might control me off of my rocker for about a week. Or a couple of days. My children, they might like to say something to me, and it can mess me up emotionally. I said, but I'm not giving people that liberty. Because the moment that people know they can get to you, it's almost like the puppet master. They're going to pull on the strings that affect you. They're going to pull on the things that they know make you upset. They're going to do the things that they know can make you mad and make you want to hurt people. I said, so we have to learn to control our emotions and never let our decisions, our choices, and the way we do things be predicated upon what people do, what people say, and how people act.
0: No doubt. You know, I spoke to Eric Berry several weeks back. And Eric Mm -hmm. Berry, of course, is one of the league's best players and certainly one of its most inspirational figures, having taken on and beaten cancer. And he told me how much he learned from you. He told me how much you've inspired him. What's it mean to hear that kind of praise from somebody like that?
2: Eric Berry is um, a special person. He's like a little brother to me. And uh, Eric used to write me his goals, you know, before every game. You know, I remember he wrote, um, he was going to win the award, the best DB award uh, in college, you know. And I remember when he first got to the NFL, he wrote his awards and sent them to me and wrote his goals and sent them to me, I'm sorry. But he's a special guy. You know, I see when he went through cancer, I went to church with him. You know, I saw when he started losing his hair. You know, I saw that process. He called me. You know, i never forget he called me. First he texted. He said, Big Bro, do you have a minute? I said, "Yeah, know, i got a minute. And then he called me. And he told me that when they found a the mask in his chest, he said it's the size of a softball. And he came down to Atlanta. We went to breakfast. We hung out. We talked about it. And he shared with me one day. He said, "Ink, now I know what you mean when you used to talk to us and say, there's another person on the inside of you. I used to always tell Eric that. Like, man, there's another person on the inside of you. No matter how hard you work, there's somebody on the inside of you that can work harder. No matter how dedicated you are, there's somebody on the inside of you that's more dedicated. And he said when he hit cancer for the first time in his life, Understood what I was speaking about when I said there's another person living on the inside of you.
0: Mm. I got two last thoughts, Inc. When you, I mean, when you lived in that house with 14 people and two bedrooms, you were so locked in and so fixated on helping better your family's circumstances. And then right before you were going to finish up and go to the NFL, obviously you had this terrible accident, but you've been working and you've been grinding and you've been extremely productive and you've done so well. Were you able to get your mom a house nonetheless?
2: Yeah, I was able to bless my mom with a house. She's doing well. You know, my living condition as well, able to help a lot of my family's mem- family members as well. Uh, me and my wife, we have a foundation. We've adopted uh, three homeless shelters in Atlanta that we do work with very closely. We also do work with youth, and we give out a scholarship every year to a youth in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, in Atlanta, Georgia. And so it all worked out. And, you know, I believe life has a way of correcting itself and getting you to the destiny that you're supposed to encounter and embrace. And so for me, I'm thankful for it all,
0: man. So that said, you're living a beautiful life, and everything is great right now, but I have to ask, and I know you've had friends ask you the same thing, if you could go back, Inky, to that very moment, what would you change, or what would you do differently?
2: You know, Jim, I, I wouldn't change a thing about it. You know, I always tell people on that day, September 9, 2006, you know, I listened to the same pregame music. You know, I used to listen to Phil Collins. You know, I could feel it coming in the air tonight. That was my song, right? I prepared the same way, pregame ritual, the same. And when I went and made that tackle, you know, I gave it everything I had. When I went out, I gave it everything I had. You know, but after the game, people ask me that question all the time. My buddies in the NFL, from Eric Berry, you know, to Ramon the plays for the Steelers, to... You know, Gerard Mayo that played for the Patriots, Robert Ayers played for the Buccaneers and the Giants, the Arian Foster, many more. Like, why wouldn't you change that? Like, ain't you got to penalize right arm in hand? You almost lost your life, man. You were 10 games away from making probably millions of dollars. Like, you have been working your whole life. Why wouldn't you change it? And the reason I wouldn't change it, you know, is because of what happened to the people that were connected to me. It changed a lot of people's lives. You know, my father Right? I won't get too specific about it, but my father was headed down the wrong road. And my father had a wife and three daughters. And so when my father got his life on track, it corrected his family. A lot of my buddies in college, right? they looked at what I went through and it corrected their life. You know. And as people, sometimes we get, we get arrogant. Right? We have a certain level of success and we feel as if we just have life by the neck. Right? Never realizing that one day you can wake up and be on top of the world. Next day you can wake up and the world can be on top of you. Right? I was as strong as I'd ever been. I was that person. I was arrogant thinking that I, I was entitled to success. I was arrogant in that way. I was as strong as I'd ever been. You know, My IQ of the game was as high as it had ever been. And I go out and I make a play that I could do with my eyes closed. And I find myself a couple of hours later fighting for my life. I wake up the next day. I can never do the thing that I once did ever again. I have a paralyzed right arm and hand behind it. My life has totally changed. And so ultimately, it makes me be grateful for life in every situation I encounter. But most importantly, the way it affected and impacted the people around me, I wouldn't change that for nothing in the world. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm a firm believer that things that happen to us, they happen for us. And if I had to weigh it on the scale, the NFL and the people's lives that got changed around me because of what happened to me, I think it'll be different. I always tell my buddies, I say, man, y'all got them NFL contracts, and it's great, it's beautiful. I said, but I got the real contract. I got the life contract, and it's long, and it's rich. And so I wouldn't change nothing that ever
0: happened to me. My man, Inky, I got to ask you, We, I, I so appreciate the time and what an amazing conversation this is. The message is just so powerful and there's even so much more to it. You're now an author, you have a foundation, you're a motivational speaker. There is so much to you and your message. If somebody listening right now wants any information at all, be it about the foundation or how to get your book or maybe just to reach out to you, I want you to take a moment and lay it out. What is the best way for folks to find you? And just give me a few thoughts on some of the things you're doing right now.
2: Absolutely. So me and my wife, uh, in Atlanta, we have a foundation called just the Inky and Allison Johnson Foundation. If you just type in my name, you'll see it. It'll come up. And we've adopted three homeless shelters that we work with in Atlanta. Uh, We go in, we do educational programs, we do game nights, we do uh, dinners, we donate clothing to their closets. Um, We also work with youth in Atlanta and in Knoxville, Tennessee. Every year we give away a scholarship to a youth in Atlanta, and in Knoxville, and so on, social media, you know, you type in Inky Johnson, that's me, and um, also my website, InkyJohnson.com, you know, or you type in Google Inky Johnson and I'll come up, and just serving and trying to make the world a better place. We're always open to people if they're in Atlanta and they're in the area, and if we're doing certain things, whether it's serving the homeless or doing different projects with you, you can look us up, we'll love for you to come out and serve and help us out, you know, we're just out trying to be a blessing and be a light in the world.
0: I can't say how much I appreciate you and the fact that you spent as much time as you did on this podcast. It is so great to get caught up, and I, I really can't thank you enough for it, Nicky. It was just outstanding. Really, really appreciate you.
2: Ben, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for what you do. I greatly appreciate it.
0: Hey, now, have you heard me talk about Zipa, Zipa. Zipa is spelled Z-Y-P-P-A-H. That's happy Z spelled backwards. If you go to bed with a Zipa, you wake up with happy Zs. Hey, you know one bad night of sleep can ruin your entire day? Are you planning a summer vacation? You do not want to ruin that entire vacation with snoring all night long. Vacations are supposed to be a time for rest and relaxation. Well, how do you expect to get any rest if they're snoring all night long? You won't. You need to get a Zipa before you take that vacation because snoring is not sleeping. So if you or somebody you know snores, just go to Zipa.com. Zipa is guaranteed to stop snoring. You have got nothing to lose. If you're not happy for any reason, simply return it for a full refund. You see, snoring is rude, it's disrespectful, it's offensive. You do not want to ruin your summer vacation with snoring, or even worse, ruin somebody else's. So get your Zpa today by going to Zipa.com. Use the promo code ROAM and you'll get free shipping, and it will ensure that you have a great summer. That's Zipa.com. So, before we get out of here, we do have some business that we have to address. First things first, if you have not done so already, can I please get you to subscribe to this podcast? Do this. Just press that button on your iPhone or on iTunes if you're using an Apple product, and it will do a lot for increasing the visibility of this thing. I really appreciate that. Second thing, on June 4th, voting for the National Radio Hall of Fame opens up. Now, this year, I've been nominated in a category that will be put to the listeners. So I'm going to need you to bang that ballot box for me. If you're listening to this episode before June 4th, keep it locked for instructions next week. If it's June 4th or after, go check my Twitter feed to find out how you can vote right now. And I can't thank you enough for that support. And finally, the Jungle Smack Off is going to be televised for the first time ever this year. If you want to watch it on July 20th, find it on DirecTV, Channel 221. Dish Channel 158. If you're going to listen to it, you can tune in on Sirius XM 206, or you can find your terrestrial station at JimRome.com slash stations. The summer is about to get nice around here, and I am pumped to have you along for it. So let's get it. Catch you in the jungle every single day, 9 to noon Pacific, or right back here for F40 next week. Until then, I am out.